competition is the law of the jungle, but cooperation is the law of civilization. And if we're actually going to build a spacefaring civilization, maybe we need to look at things that way. Space is trying to kill you. That is something that we have known for a long time and um, how we keep people healthy and surviving and also thriving in space is changing. So welcome everyone to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. As always, my name is Dr. Shauna Pandya. I am a rural emergency physician out of Canada. I am WEM faculty as well as an honorary fellow with the World Extreme Medicine Organization. And today we have an amazing set of guests for you. We are here to talk about the changing base of space medicine education. And with us today, we have the program director and the assistant program director of the newly minted Baylor College of Medicine Space Medicine Training Program. We have Dr. Eric Antonsen, program director, as well as Dr. Dana Levin, assistant program director, both with incredible backgrounds and pedigrees. Dr. Antonsen is board certified in emergency medicine with a PhD in aerospace and uh, engineering. He is, uh, has been an element scientist for the exploration medical capability at NASA's Human Research Program, as well as director of NASA's Human Systems Risk Board at Johnson Space Center. And Dana is no slouch either. He is doubly board certified in aerospace medicine and emergency medicine out of the University of Texas Medical Branch. And he also has NASA heritage, having worked as a systems engineering and integration physician for the NASA Human Research Program exploration medical capability element uh, and for the commercial crew program. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. So let's get into it. As a brief introduction, um, why why space medicine? Why is it even a thing to, to just kick us off for background? <laughs> why is it a thing? It's because we're going to space and we've been in space for the last chunk of years, right? 1961, we send somebody to space and space medicine actually first started, at least in the US, um, 11 or 12 years before that, before we even put anybody into space, because anticipating the needs of what was going to happen and what was going on with the human body, when we finally got there, there was a large amount of research that needed to be done to try to understand um, how we could best prepare people for this and how we could keep them healthy. Um, the fact that it started in research, the fact that it started in this place where we were trying to accrue knowledge and better understand what was coming down the road, so to speak, um, it is the central tenet of space medicine for me that it is not just um, about uh, who can go to space and it is not just about the way that NASA has always done it. It is about what we need in the future. And now that we've kind of turned a corner with the entire human spaceflight industry and have commercial companies that are growing, expanding and sending a whole different set of people to space, the needs that we have to take care of those people are changing. And that's why space medicine, because if we're going to go do these things, if we're going to reach for the stars, um, keeping up with the challenges, keeping up with the changes that are coming with new types of people flying with new missions and new needs, um, you have to go back to the drawing board sometimes and create to augment the already good things that exist in, in the, the larger aerospace medicine community. Dana, you look like you want to add to that. Sure. I was, I was just going to say that the quick answer to this is that we're sending people into space and anywhere that people go, there is the risk of medical events occurring. So if you want to do something risky and you are at risk of medical events, you may want to have a physician or somebody else, else there to assist in caring for you. And that's the short answer to it. Um, I think the, the longer answer to it is that spaceflight by itself is inherently risky and medicine is an art of risk mitigation. So in addition to a bunch of engineering controls and, and operational controls to try to lower that risk and enhance the chance of mission success, Medicine is a strong component of that whenever you have a human component to the system. That's what space medicine is in a nutshell. Perfect. And let's let's kind of define some terms to so we're all on the same page here when it comes to talking about um, 
keeping astronauts healthy in space because it, it takes a village. And so it's we when we say space medicine physician, it could be the flight surgeon, it could be someone who's aerospace medicine trained, but not on call or on console. It could be an element scientist. So when we say space medicine physician, who who all can that refer to? I think That's a tough the, question. It is a tough <laughs> Pop quiz. One of the goals, though, is to broaden that definition. Um, so uh, when we talk about physicians in a hospital setting, um, we don't just describe one physician, or we don't just describe the physician who's taking care of the patient immediately, and the one that's in front of them. That could be whatever, an internal medicine doctor, an emergency doctor, something like that. But it also doesn't mean that the radiologist that may not see the, the patient, but helps with their diagnosis is not a physician. They are, it's their background, or the pathologist. Um, it doesn't mean that the consultants are not you know, physicians who are taking care of the patient. It also doesn't mean that the researchers who are contributing to how um, all of the uh, knowledge that we bring to bear on those patients, uh, it doesn't mean that they're not physicians, they are. Um, and so I think historically space medicine, because it has been a very small niche, it grew up within the context of the aerospace medicine community uh, because there wasn't enough um, resources or need for it to stand on its own two feet. Um, separate from aviation medicine. It, it, it has been in historically put lumped together with the aviation medicine that's been done with the military and other things. Um, and while space flight is similar to aviation, the longer we are up there, the more deconditioning that humans experience, the farther we go from Earth, and the more things that we do, the more gulf we put between aviation and space um, and what people need to know. And so much like all those other physicians who are supporting patients in and around a hospital experience are, you know, physicians, are human physicians, um, and have a whole bunch of different roles, I think in space medicine, we have the same thing emerging. We've had physicians who have been researchers, those who have been flight surgeons, those who have been heavily invested in and um, working with systems engineering teams. And physicians bring a certain skill set and expertise to all of the aspects of development of the industry. Um, right now, there are a lot of commercial companies that are starting to ask questions about what they need on the human side of things. And historically, they would look to ECLIS engineers and human factor specialists. And that leaves a whole area of expertise untapped. So physicians can bring their skills into all these different domains and they should, um, because the longer we go and the more deconditioned that crews have and the more challenges that we have physiologically, the more we can help shape systems and um, shape not just prevention anymore, but also the response to what happens in space. And uh, for the uninitiated, do you want to define ECLIS? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for calling me out on that. So ECLIS, um, environmental, life, uh, environmental Control and Life Support Systems. Great. Systems, I think that in, in, in general, right, space medicine is a type of systems medicine and a spacecraft has a whole bunch of different types of systems associated with it. They have that environmental control and life support system. They have propulsion system. They have um, aviation guidance, navigation control, uh, all of that sort of stuff are different systems within the larger space endeavor. And from the risk board perspective, we always characterize the humans as the human system to remind the engineers that humans were just like any other system in the vehicle or the habitat. They require repair and maintenance, um, just like any other system. So it's trying to put it all on par with that. And I will, I will. is the thing that is, Eclis is the thing that's always failing in every science fiction movie. That's your life support. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And I will always maintain and hold steadfast that uh, part of that maintenance always requires caffeine. So as long as it's part of the space plan. I'm there. It is risk mitigation, human <laughs> exactly. performance. Exactly. Uh, one thing, one thing that I would add to that, uh, just as a as a as a background, is that typically traditionally everybody thinks of the flight surgeon as the the primary point of contact, and that is a very specific and important role, but it's not the only one, uh, and it's not been true historically. Also, there have been crew surgeons and flight surgeons and 
um, research physicians and clinic physicians, all of which are, have been involved with every aspect of the program from inception through today. Um, the flight surgeon term itself is a historical holdover from uh, the military term where you were a, a surgeon was a general term for the military physician dating all the way back to like revolutionary war in the U S era, like 1700s. Um, and, to, and it kept, and it got carried forward so that when you started having flight medicine, uh, as a, as a discipline, they would bring in a flight surgeon to take care of pilots and aircrew. Uh, it was largely a preventive medicine role, uh, that dealt with screening certification and then recertification to ensure that pilots and aircrew were ready to fly on a moment's notice or not. Um, and that, that term has evolved over time so that today in the space medicine world, it generally refers to the uh, team that works in space medicine operations at uh, either NASA or the commercial operators that have gone through a preventive medicine, aerospace medicine certification training program. So it's a pretty restricted, narrow term, but there are uh, a number of physicians that are currently operating in the space medicine world that do not hold a flight surgeon title, but are continuing to do important work on both operational and research sides. And that's a, that's why this is a change. It's a changing issue. The definitions are hard to, are hard to uh, pin down for at the moment. They're, yeah. uh, they're getting there. It's a bit, it's a bit nebulous. If you'll forgive the pun. Um, so the pieces are starting to fall into place here. You know, we've talked about the need for space medicine experts, whether it be flight surgeons, element scientists, researchers. Um, we've talked about the history of aerospace medicine. Um, and just as we put the final pieces into place here, um, we're going to get to the program that you two are pioneering at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, but before we do that, the other piece is what have been the traditional formal education and training routes? What is what has existed in the past? And then what dearth has that left? Um, maybe Dana, we'll start with you and then punt it over to Eric. Sure. Well, uh, that was the pathway that I went through. Uh, so traditionally in, at least in the US, and I'll use that as the example because I know it well, and it has historically been one of a very small number of nations that have achieved space flight. Uh, that's changing now. But uh, and historically, what that was is you would graduate from a residency program uh, in aerospace medicine. So you went through college, med school, and then you would, in most cases, do a primary residency in something like emergency, family, internal medicine, or anything, really. And then do a second training program, a residency in aerospace medicine that sits under the board of preventive medicine uh, today. That training program was two years long. Uh, it would provide you with a master of public health and then a series of rotations or the ability, the opportunity to do a series of rotations through the space medicine community. And that was anything from uh, space medicine operations to space medicine research to the, uh, to, to fields that were ancillary, but related like hyperbaric medicine or working in occupational health. Uh, so that was what, that's what that training program was, but it tried to cram everything into, uh, really two years with about half of it dedicated to a master of public health. Eric, anything to add there? I think that, um, one thing to remember about when you ask about what were the pathways, right? That what, what Dana is describing is the UTMB residency, which, um, actually started out as a fellowship in 1993. And then when they went and, and were looking for board certification, um, uh, they ended up working with the Preventive Medicine Board and that in order to meet a requirement that to challenge the board in preventive medicine, they had to have graduated from an accredited residency for preventive medicine. They switched their, their uh, program from a fellowship to a residency in 1997. So that was part of trying to get formal recognition at that time. Now there was another program and the folks who were, who created the NASA UTMB program came out of Wright State. Uh, and that program was ex in existence. It was kind of the transition from a lot of the air uh, and aviation centric medicine out into the aerospace domain. And that program collapsed in 2017. Um, 
A few years ago, Mayo Clinic started an aerospace medicine fellowship, and UTMB continues to operate the fellowship that they have in place. These are highly valuable programs. Uh, the challenge is that Wright State collapsed because of financial reasons. Um, they didn't have the institutional support they needed. And, you know, it's, it's always a threat um, in terms of finding ways to fund these things. So, uh, you know, my pathway did not involve going through aerospace medicine training. My pathway involved, um, you know, two separate fields, bachelor's, master's, and PhD in aerospace engineering with um, focus in fluid dynamics and propulsion, and then going into the medical field. Um, and uh, I've found uh, lots of opportunities to work at NASA in these capacities because the skill sets that I brought were relevant uh, to the problems that were being faced. So I think what we've had is that we've had this aerospace medicine pathway, and then we've had other people who figured out how to do different things, but all that were valuable to the field. And I think part of what we're trying to get to now is recognizing there's a core set of, of information that people should know when they're starting to work in the spaceflight domain. You need to understand what's happening with the body when it goes into spaceflight. Um, you need to understand what has happened before in terms of accidents and, and mishaps and stuff. Um, there's a lot of things that you need to understand, but then depending on what you're doing in that field, you may need to focus more on preventive medicine, occupational health, emergency medicine, launch and landing support, systems engineering, systems medicine, right? There's a lot of different domains that are now asking for the expansion in the way that we train people. Yeah. And the, the thing is, as, as you start, as we start flying more people and, and historically that path, the pathway that I described was adequate when you were dealing with a small group of, of astronauts in a relatively contained space where a single training program was sufficient to provide enough physicians. And after that training program, any knowledge that you didn't have from the training could be picked up on the job or uh, through, uh, through experience or through separate training programs that were formalized internal to NASA or the, or the other agencies. Um, that was what it was, but we're not there anymore. And stuff is starting to change around so that we have commercial entities that are getting involved, other government agencies that are getting involved in spaceflight, other governments. And the small number of graduates from these, these programs, which historically have, have catered to the, the NASA internal model, are no longer adequate to support uh, the number of the demand, basically. There are, there are currently three active positions open right now, partly uh, as a result of being unable to fill them. There's just not enough people. And that is one, that's one challenge that we're facing. The other challenge is that the NASA model is not necessarily applicable to all of these different fields. So the NASA astronaut model is fantastic and has uh, really been a, a, an, extremely, an, an extremely useful metric of success or a, a, to be held up for NASA's astronaut program. But the commercial world has different aims, and they want to try and open up space to more people, to different types of people, more diversity, more uh, access, age, genders, um, and, and, uh, and demographics of all kinds. And that's been, in order to do that, you're going to be flying more people on different vehicles, doing different things, everything from tourism to research to entertainment. There's movies that are going to be filmed in space now, um, and construction work. So industry is going to grow. As that happens, there are a variety of expertise fields that have not traditionally been trained and have kind of been filled by the occasional person who's able to do it that gets brought in, like Eric, where he they needed an engineer to handle some of these risk things, so they brought in someone who understood both engineering and medicine. And Eric was able to fill that role because it was relatively small. But now that we need, say, five or six different Eric Antonsons, we can't expect that we're going to have sufficient numbers of MD PhDs interested in spaceflight that have the depth and breadth of expertise that Eric does. So we need to enhance the current training models to add some of that expertise in and identify what the core factors are that are required of people practicing in the field. And that's kind of how, how things are going. Even the, and, and that's true both for the traditional pathways as well as the ones that we're forming outside of it. Um, and, and it's the, the need for change is not lost. It's just more of a discussion of exactly how 
and what needs to change. And that's an ongoing conversation. That's that's where we are today. And to your point, Dana, um, and I know we've been using UTMB. So for the uninitiated, uninitiated uh, University of Texas Medical Branch, I think it was this program, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, just swapped out the MPH requirement for MS, an MSc, so Masters of um, uh, Science. And so that kind of points to the need that it's not just preventative, to your point. It might be about science. It might be about research. Um, there's a lot of other pathways towards supporting astronauts in space. So even in, again, amongst traditional paths, there's a need to evolve with the times. It's well, a, and that brings up an interesting, an interesting concept there, where the the traditional path, as we discussed a little earlier, is is grew up from aviation, and um, that aerospace medicine certification is still a very critical part of aviation medicine. And there's uh, any pilot or air crew member, both military and civilian, have to get screened by a aviation specialist. Now, there's a variety of levels there, so I don't want to equate flight surgeon and aerospace medicine residency trained person with an aeromedical examiner. But conceptually, you do have um, a need for trained people to cater to aviation medicine and a need for people to cater to space medicine. Now, it's getting, it's, it's getting to a point where the needs of the aviation industry, which are not changing, they're pretty well evolved. We know, we have a sense of how medicine in aviation works are starting to become vastly different than where we are in the space world. And the example, like an easy example of that is that none of the pilots and air crew that are working in their spacecraft or in their aircraft are occupying those aircraft for years, months, months or years at a time. Whereas that is a routine part of space flight. So if we have different, a different operational needs, different human needs for the vehicles that they're in, that they're flying in, but we have that's going to require eventually different training programs, and we're getting to the point where you're starting to see that. Where even the UTMB program is saying, ah, "This Master of Public Health is probably not the best one. We need a more a more variety in our our field. We need to cover these different topics." But the aviation world is still saying, "No, we do need this Master of Public Health. That's critical for our needs." So at that point, you're starting to see this split, and there's a little bit of tension there as to how much of a gap can we tolerate within the same programs before it actually needs to be its own specialty. And that's, that's another part of that ongoing discussion in that um, we're starting to tease apart the differences between aviation and spaceflight. And have we reached the point where that's enough to separate it into its own program? One thing to keep in mind about that is that when UTMB's program started, it, the master's degree was actually, um, not an MPH, and it morphed into it over the years um, to it's become true of right state. Also, yeah, it morphed into it over the years to become consistent with um, what the Board of Preventive Medicine was demanding. Um, and I think that now we are at a point where it's you know those there are some folks who view that as well. This is the way it's done. Those are the rules, and we're looking at it saying, hey, if the operational paradigm is changing, if the expectations for the field is changing, if the people flying are changing and the missions are changing and the needs are changing, then we have to go back and question whether those are the right rules to have in place. And that's kind of where a lot of this has been born from. And so now I think we've laid the foundation perfectly to present what you two have been working on for a long time, and that is the launch of the Baylor College of Medicine Space Medicine Training Program. Um, and if I were American, I would be all over this because it looks like a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of knowledge. Um, so this is a two-year training program for board-certified emergency medicine residents. Um, so take us through the, the anatomy of the program and kind of where these doctors end up, these newly minted minted space doctors end up afterwards. <laughs> so do you want to take that one? <laughs> I, well, there's a few, there's a few piece parts to that because right now, um, our, we have no graduates. So, uh, we recently started and, and we're, we're in a partnership with Massachusetts general hospital. We share faculty and, and, and training opportunities and resources with them. So in theory, um, we've had, we've also, we also consider their fellows to be our fellows. Um, so there's three fellows in the system right now. Um, 
the several of the things that we felt were important um, became pillars of, of what we tried to structure into this. One is making sure uh, that people get the right exposures and didactics and experiential things. But the other one that I think um, sometimes gets forgotten is if we think it's very important to maintain a high standard of clinical practice when you are doing a job like this, because if you are the person who is going to be there at uh, when injuries occur, whether it's at landing and, and bad situations and training, other stuff like that, we think that you should be used to taking care of, of ill patients and injured patients. Um, and I think that one of the, the things that we felt over the years um, was lacking from, from some of the other pathways were that there wasn't a requirement for that. There was an opportunity for it, but it wasn't protected time for uh, the trainees to make sure that they were actually maintaining their clinical skills in a setting where they were gonna experience trauma and burns and sick people and all that sort of stuff and be the person who has to lay their hands on somebody and make the clinical decisions that are time sensitive. Um, since COVID, telemedicine has been a big part of emergency medicine too. Um, and so trying to work all of these things in while making sure that the, the, the trainees have adequate time to continue to practice and maintain their skills and their primary specialty was truly critical for us. Um, and so part of what we looked at was that the time that had gone into um, many of the preventive medicine um, sort of focused uh, things, um, we felt uh, a lot of that would be better served by protecting time for clinical care and then using a roughly similar amount of time that the other programs had for aerospace specific experiences and focus it into the space side of things, right? What do you need to know on top of being a good doctor in order to practice in space medicine? So they, every medical specialty has to have, has an, sorry guys, Every medical specialty has a number of core competencies. You have specific skills that are that a graduate from that program is expected to have, and that's a requirement when you are a certified program, um, and to all and also pretty critical to be able to tell what defines that particular person. So that's true of every medical specialty you can think of, whether that's a fellowship like cardiology or a broad specialty like family medicine. And for us, what we since space medicine right now is a little bit of a moving target, but there are pretty well-established and, and, uh, and obvious areas where space medicine expertise is necessary. So what we did, uh, to give you background on how we did this, is we interviewed a whole bunch of the people that we knew, um, talking to people who work in every aspect of this, from the operations group to um, the research side to the development side to astronauts. And we also, to capture the, because that's all in, inherently a subjective experience, it's just who's your network, we also did a, uh, a, a needs assessment survey, an educational needs assessment survey. And we sent that out to everybody, to a wide range of practitioners in aerospace, in aerospace and space medicine, and asked them to identify what the key areas were. So when we did that, that gave us our ballpark starting place. And what we came up with are seven major areas where, uh, the, where, where we would expect a space medicine expert to have competencies. So we've written these up, and that's environment and physiology, understanding what happens in spaceflight and what happens to the human body in spaceflight. So what's it like up there, and how does the human body interact? Uh, we also needed, as Eric was alluding to, clinical and procedural competence. So you need to be able to diagnose patients. You need to be able to treat patients or know when to refer them to specialists. Uh, and that makes up about the, the that makes about a quarter of our uh, program. Um, the operational and space the operational space medicine side, which are protocols and uh, concepts and uh, and practices that would be involved in keeping people and machines and systems safe. So think of something like start triage for a disaster uh, a, a, a disaster event where a spacecraft explodes on the station and you've got, or explodes on the ground and you've got all these casualties around it. That would be 
operational space medicine or console support, the kind of systems-based support. In addition, we also have research and engineering. You need to be able to interpret research and apply it in the field. It is growing. It is new. We also need you to have the background of uh, familiarity of being able to talk to engineers. They have a very different language than medicine, uh, sometimes using the same words. And being able to understand what an engineer is asking for or what an engineer needs and having and being able to translate uh, what medicine requires and what medicine needs to an engineer is a very useful skill. We also need our physicians to maintain standards of ethics and professionalism. That's part of our core competencies, as well as management and administration, which actually came out in our needs assessment as a reasonably important uh, minor con uh, consideration, but something that you would need. We have management physicians. So that's what it is. We have environment physiology, clinical yeah. procedural competence, operational space medicine, research engineering, ethics and professionalism, management administration, and then a few other kind of miscellaneous competencies that are mostly related to uh, requirements such as what ACGME would hold a, uh, or the American College of Graduate Medical Education would hold their physicians to. Let me let me touch a little bit on one thing that, that um, Dana was talking about with the research and engineering side of it. We typically don't, I mean, there is a large role for physicians in research all over the place, but you don't typically have physicians involved uh, all that often in the, um, um, the setup and support equipment of the hospital, for example, right? If you go to the wall and turn on the oxygen, somebody else has set all that stuff up for you and you're not responsible for it. And that's one of the big challenges is that in spaceflight, you probably will be responsible for it um, if you are uh, a working crew member because there just aren't that many people. We also don't typically have um, physicians involved in aviation that are involved in every step all the way through the systems engineering life cycle of the development of new aircraft. Why? because we have done a lot of research and we understand a lot of those things. And that's a mature industry, right? We have billions of people flying on aircraft every year all over the world, and it's a mature industry. Now, where we are in spaceflight is that most of these companies out there are in a design and development phase to some extent. SpaceX is farther along than most, um, but all of them, are, are still designing and developing and trying to figure out how to do some of the things that NASA and the international partners did with the space station. And that knowledge doesn't just immediately transfer. All of these companies are going through these design processes. And one of the things that we learned from NASA was that you need these voices for human system integration, medicine, and these sort of things, starting with the conceptual phases and the preconceptual phases of the systems engineering life cycle because these folks are gonna have questions all the way through it, and it's a conversation. And if you don't do it until the end, then you end up with a, with a problem that we historically ran into at, at NASA a lot, which was physicians and flight surgeons looking up and saying, why can't I get my thing on this vehicle? Why can't I get this? It's, it's critically important for these people that we have my thing, right? Whether it's a, a defibrillator or a, you know, a ventilator or whatever it is. And the reason why is because those design decisions and freezes are made years and years before flights. And if people who have the expertise are not part of those conversations, then what you end up with is a medical kit that you bring on like a little doctor's bag after the fact, as opposed to an integrated crew health and performance system, which has been designed into the vehicle and has the capability to move information, access telemetry, you know, send things to flight surgeons on earth, as well as make it available to the crew and the commander. Um, that information flow is a critical part of what we will be doing in the future, taking advantage of just the computing capabilities and systems that we have today. So if you don't design those things in, while we're in the early stages of this industry changing, then you're not gonna have them and medicine and physicians will be an afterthought. So that's why part of why that is so important. The industry where it is right now, we want to someday get to where the aviation industry is, but we're not gonna get there in a, in a 
safe way and a healthy way unless we participate in every step of that process. And to that point, you really need the art of foresight there because this is a rapidly evolving uh, commercial sector. You know, it's anyone's guess as to who the winners uh, and losers and new players will be. So we really, it needs to be a, a broad net. And um, to to your point about the curriculum um, and Dana, in addition to what you were, were listing um, and in addition to what you're saying, Eric, um, I see that on the curriculum listed on the Baylor site, um, there's and of interest to this audience, there's dedicated training towards extreme and austere environments um, and the medicine involved with that, as well as space analog simulation. Um, so can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Well, when you're putting people in extreme environments, uh, one of the one of the best ways to or one of the only ways to really train anything in medicine is to actually go do it so yes. in an ideal world and perhaps somewhere down the line we're going to put physicians on spacecraft and that'll be part of your training but that's science fiction right now we're not anywhere near that that place in in history but until then um what we want is physicians to gain experience in what it's like when you aren't working in a traditional space. So when we're trained in medicine, we have hospitals around us, nurses, techs, administrators, all this stuff. And we can say, you know, I'm going to sit down and chart my, you know, write my chart here because that's what I need to do. And I don't have to worry about the IV lines or pulling the meds out or mixing the meds or any of these background skills. I don't have to take my own x-rays. I, I, it's We don't necessarily realize exactly how much of a system we're operating in and how well some of those components work. Um, we take it for granted. But if I take a physician who's used to training in that environment and I throw you out into the middle of nowhere, say a expedition up the top of a mountain uh, to Kilimanjaro, suddenly you're now confronted with a patient who's giving you uh, symptoms saying that they have a splitting headache and they're feeling dizzy and they can't walk in a straight line. And you're going to look around and say, ah, you know, I'll get my CT scan and get my nurse. To oh, wait a second. And you're in a field. There is wind blowing everywhere. The only shelter you have is a tent. You got you know a bunch of people looking at you and saying, Doc, what do we do? And you have your hands and whatever you brought with you. So apropos of discussion earlier, you hope that what you brought with you was well thought out, well planned, and anticipated the needs of what was going on. But in that environment, you get the practice of what it's like to operate with minimal support. Or even if you can pick up a phone and call down to uh, you know a, an expert on the ground, that expert is sitting in a comfortable chair, sitting there listening to you on the phone and saying, "Have you tried doing this?" Um, ideally, that expert's been in your environment and can help walk you through it. But if the person never trained in that environment, or if the person has, uh, or if you, and, and that person will have a lot of difficulty giving you guidance. And if you are the physician that is expected to take care of an astronaut or, a, uh, or anybody involved in the spaceflight environment, and you have no sense of what it's like to practice autonomously or to practice without support or to receive telemedical advice or to give telemedical advice, and the first time you're doing it is when you have a medical emergency and somebody's life literally depends on it, that's a challenge. So that's why we want to put our people in wilderness environments. And there's a variety of places to get that experience. So you can't, since we're not sending people into space, I have to give you a experience of what it's like to operate when you don't have direct hands-on with the patient or what it's like when you have a, a, a tiny cot that you're doing all of your care on or what it's like to work to start your own IVs, what it's like to do your own ultrasounds, what it's like to... Uh, make decisions when your telemedical support gets cut off. And we send our um, graduates, and this is an evolving thing because we have to make these agreements all the time, but his, uh, so far we've been able, we've been lucky and able to send our uh, fellows to places like Alaska, um, to uh, Nepal, to, uh, uh, um, I'm thinking of a bunch of these other places right now, that's not on the tip of my tongue, but uh, diving ex excursions in, uh, in, in deep sea, uh, and, and even on, uh, on research vessels, we've been able to place them in, in locations where they have that, they can get that kind of experience and then they can come back and file it away for five years from now when they're comfortably sitting on console and they get, you know, a, uh, you know their, their flight director shakes them awake because they've been passed out at 3 a.m. and says, 
Doc, we got a problem. And now they're ready for it because they've been there. And that's that's the concept. You've just described a, a typical Saturday for many of our WEM listeners, and I think they're all chomping at the bit now to come join you. Um, so this has been a fascinating discussion. I know this is a program in its infancy, um, and maybe two years out is when we'll start seeing the first results. Um, where is your hope? What is your hope of where your graduates will land? And um, We'll Mars. start with that question, Mars. Well, so that's that's the second part of my question, actually, is that um, I know, you know, offline we've talked about this before, is that, yes, aerospace medicine, aviation medicine, civil and military was, you know, the, the grandfather of all of this. Um, but maybe someday we're going to have to sub-specialize sub into lunar medicine, Mars medicine, you know, one-third gravity medicine versus 17% gravity medicine versus Europa medicine. Um, so maybe um, let's let's kind of forecast a little bit into the future, starting with two years out and then wherever our imaginations take us? So for one thing, uh, two years out from now, uh, I'd like to make sure that we have um, solidified board certification pathways for graduates. I would like to make sure that our graduates are going to the places that are good and right for them as individuals, first and foremost. Um, uh, I think that the number and the different types of opportunities that this training can afford um, can take you in a lot of different directions. I think that, uh, you know, space agencies and space commercial space like companies are some of those places. But I also think it's important for um, uh, academia to have some of these folks as well to kind of start building out our capacity to do the research that is involved in human spaceflight. Um, and I think that uh, some physicians who I know that are working in this space would really like to be a lot more involved in the engineering, for example, or you know, in the research and other things like that. And what I want is to make sure that folks recognize that those are valid and credible and needed pathways for training in space medicine because of where the industry is right now. And I think that historically, there's been a sort of a sense that the only valid space medicine job out there was to be a flight surgeon. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, I think that the flight surgeon is part of a larger team of folks that bring a lot of different skill sets and capabilities to the table uh, to help a mission succeed. Uh, and so my hope is that they're all over the place. They're doing a lot of different things, not just going to one specific uh, location or one specific job type, if that makes sense. Dana? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun question to ask, where do we see graduates going? Because one, the field is changing so rapidly. And two, it's a conversation with the graduate. Um, it's never something, it's never my decision of, I want you here. Um, I can have things that I would be interested in or things that I could foresee as being beneficial uh, for a program or for an individual that they may enjoy. But ultimately, my job is to prepare them, uh, prepare our graduate for what it is that they want to do. And the best advice I was ever given for any of this stuff is uh, distilling it down was to find a group of people that you enjoy working with, a culture that you like being within, and to find tasks and things within your work that you enjoy. So if you are, you know, if you're, if you're like dead set focused on a particular goal, and then you find that that culture is toxic or unwelcoming or not fun and not innovative, you're not going to have a good a career there. It doesn't matter how good you are or how capable you are, or where you're placed, it's not going to be a good spot for you. So you have to then, my job in that case would be to help that person redefine where they would want to be and find the culture that, that best fits them. And it may not be something they expect, but that said, playing this game out and saying, where are we going to be in two years? I would expect that some of our graduates are going to end up in academia and some of them are, are probably going to end up working within the commercial uh, or, or government uh, space flight space. And I don't know if they're going to do operations or, 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 uh, or research or, or engineering and development. I'm not sure. My suspicion is that they're going to end up doing a variety of different things and their careers are going to take a lot of twists and turns as they grow. Um, 
But that's the short version. Right now, I can tell you there are three jobs open directly in space medicine. Uh, some of them are government positions. Some of them are commercial. And they are a mix of uh, research engineering, development, and operations. So I think it's going to be a variety. Um, pass that out in 10 years. 10 years' time. And this is kind of the fun stuff where you get to play a little bit of science fiction. But in 10 years' time, we have companies that are planning to launch space stations. And there may very well be two to three commercial space stations, or privately owned ones at least, operating in orbit in 10 years. In addition, right around that mark is probably, you know, you're going to have the NASA missions out to the, to the moon and doing the Artemis stuff, but right around that mark is where we're going to start to see um, probably some form of permanent base or long-term settlements on the lunar surface. We have probes that are bringing back uh, evidence of resources that are valuable, and that sets up a really interesting paradigm. Because in the 1960s, it was all about national prestige and getting there first and doing the cool things. But now what we're talking about is resource acquisition. And when we've been in the, the last time that we've been in those places, not to draw parallels to a particularly gross period in human history, but that was the age of discovery. Go find something new. And we would tend to, um, certain groups tended to go to these places, settle, and then uh, and try to acquire these resources or at least create permanent settlements and acknowledging there are some really bad elements of the history there. We're not in that same space either, but we're closer to that model than the 1960s rates where we've got resources, we've got national competition, and we've got a public private partnership that seems to be forming. So this could be either a collection of bases or a joint complex that we're settling on the moon. Um, and we're going to start to be looking more further out towards Mars and asteroid prospecting and that kind of stuff. We're going to have a lot more data from the health perspective. We're going to have a lot more experiences. I expect we're going to see some significant medical events that have occurred. We haven't seen much yet. Um, and that's been a, a, a function of flying very few people, uh, as well as uh, robust screening and, um, and to some extent, the medical care provided on, on, uh, on, on site. Um, but we're going to see a lot more. I think we're going to see a lot more medical events that occur because we're going to be flying more people. And when you have that, you're going to start to see a need for a variety of different things. And that in that 10 year period is where you'll start to see a little bit of subspecialization where we might see the group that really does focus on medical engineering and systems medicine, or the group that focuses on launch and landing support, or a group that focuses on truly extraterrestrial care. Um, not little green aliens, but you know, little multicolored people that are floating up and floating around that's up there. the hundred year plan right for the little green guy yeah and eventually <laughs> eventually yeah. then we're going to have then we're going to have like you know dr mccoy and all that stuff but you, that's that's where i see this going and it's going to evolve from there i think one thing to sort of add to that is if you look over the near term um, and the recent past most of the way that we bought down risk in space flight was to fly the healthiest people in the world right and focus on sort of a preventive medicine paradigm. Now, as a lot of things are changing, that paradigm is gonna get complemented with an acute care capability that um, it's sort of like, great, the preventive medicine drops the likelihood of bad things happening, but when they do happen, you also need to drop the consequence of those things happening. And that's why they play hand in hand. If you think about things like surgery in space, for example, there's a lot of advocates for that. Um, I don't see that becoming a thing until uh, we've got people on the moon, probably on the lunar surface in a you know long-term way. Um, I don't know that it's worthwhile to try to put that level of capability onto space stations in low Earth orbit when you have the advantages of being able to you know evacuate or have a fair amount of up mass uh, and stuff like that. I'm not sure about that, but I you know at some point you start to get to that point where the preventive and acute care paradigm for things then gives way to some level of a primary care paradigm, right? Where you have people who are, you know, living and working in these spaces for extended periods. And it's also not worth, you know, the, the energy to, to evacuate somebody is not worth it. Um, and so you try to put these things uh, more into a ongoing mixed occupational and just primary care mode 
with eventually building out subspecialties that are needed in an environment where you're doing things like construction and you know dangerous tasks. Um, and so I expect that over the next decade, you'll start to see those overtones emerge in the way that space medicine is performed. And space medicine has never been one group's domain. Um, it kind of got, got caught under the preventive medicine umbrella for a while, but all of the people who were graduating and working in those domains had specialties before they went into it. And, and it was, you know, Richard Jennings who, who created the UTMB residency, you know, he said, you've got to be a good doctor first, um, and then we can work with you. Um, and he also was very famous for saying, I don't care what color jersey you wear, as long as you can block and tackle, right? <laughs> you've got to be able to do the job or the jobs that are being asked of you. And the number of jobs and the types of jobs that are being asked of physicians are expanding now and expanding significantly. Um, and that's part of why we're here. You know, um, my my imagination just uh, started going wild there with the these these projections. You know, I see your graduates ending up as the medical directors, you know, making the call to evacuate versus treat in situ. I see your future graduates maybe forty years out doing a rotation on the moon at the lunar base. Um, but uh, that's you know the future is still yet to be written. Um, two questions as we hit the home stretch here. Right now, this program is for emergency medicine board certified trainees. Um, do you see that evolving as the the years go on? Um, we talked about Eric. You just referred to the importance of primary care. We know that space medicine requires all comers, all specialties. Um, or is this going to stay? Um, very focused because you yourselves are emergency physicians. Um, I, Baylor has a center. <laughs> Dana, go for Let, it. I'll start it real I'm quick. Sure. Just, I just want to make, make it clear. Baylor has a center for space medicine and it has had one for a long time. It was the first one in the country who was doing medical education in this domain. Um, and, and Baylor's always had a hand in a lot of the research. Um, uh, bioastronautics, Trish is at Baylor right now, the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. Um, and a lot of folks who have worked at NASA in a variety of capacities have been at Baylor. And so um, part of the responsibilities that come with being the fellowship being a part of the center is that it we do not intend it to stay only emergency medicine. There's a long history of people who are from a variety of different fields coming and working within this domain. And we think that it's appropriate to take in people from different fields and start training them in the space medicine specific stuff. Um, why is it starting in emergency medicine? Because well, in part because it's emergency medicine folks have been the ones getting off their butt and building these things to start out with. And it kind of has to start someplace. Um, and then once you get the pathway and the um, infrastructure in place, it's easier than to add on. And so part of our goal has always been to find a way to make a board certifying structure that is similar to like critical care or some of these other places where you can have graduates from different residencies come in um, and learn all the same core stuff and then go out and work in different capacities within that field. But you can't build these things in a day. These fellowships, I mean, we've been working on this for several years now and um, it takes time to build these things out. Uh, so hopefully having paved that path um, we can start uh, in the next few years eventually expanding, right? Uh, neurologists and internal medicine specialists and surgeons and others. Uh, we think it's important for all of them to eventually have a pathway and it should be a shared board certification. So that's part of the idea of, of uh, why we want this to be a, a fellowship model. Um, it's, it's pretty common in medicine now that you do a primary specialty and then you have additional knowledge that you add on to it uh, in your fellowship training. That's, that's not an uncommon thing as we get more specialized and as we start to gain a little more specific expertise in things. And space medicine shouldn't be much different than that. Um, when you go up into, into orbit or beyond, you don't magically change your physiology. You're not growing a new organ system. You're not... Um, you know, uh, becoming a, a very specific 
you know, genetic difference from somebody on Earth, you are entering a new environment. Uh, and you are interacting with technology to keep you alive. So there are some, there are nuances and some separate knowledge that you need to have, but the base mm -hmm. concepts of what keeps a human healthy and how to treat and uh, diagnose and treat disease doesn't change. We still need neurology. We still need cardiology. We still need surgery. We still need acute care and, in, and preventive care and long-term maintenance care. We need all of that. So... I should not be placing everybody under a primary residency and saying, hey, you've got to do uh, this and restricting people into this box and saying, this is the only be-all, end-all knowledge that you need. What we should be doing is allowing, uh, creating, a, creating a pathway where uh, the core knowledge is identified and then transferred to people who already have the clinical expertise necessary and are allowed and permitted to continue practicing to maintain those skills. So that's the fellowship model, um, and that's one of the things that we've been uh, pushing for and why we have gone the route that we've gone. And eventually, so we got to start somewhere, and my two boards are emergency and preventive. So i got to start with somebody, and right now the emergency medicine board has been gracious enough to give us the administrative cover and assistance to work in that field, because I'm not an administrator, and I don't know a lot about that stuff. So I'm working with a team of people, also doctors, who happen to have that kind of expertise because it's bigger than just me. Um, but when I, um, once we get this pathway set up and we understand what that core knowledge is and all those pieces defined, we will start to be able to get other specialists in. And particularly as the field grows and as the need becomes necessary. So like as Eric was talking about with lunar, with surgery, uh, we may not need surgery in space right now, but let's say that in 10 years we now have a permanent station on the moon and we really are starting to get into that uh, point where the risks of needing on-site surgical intervention are, uh, ex are, are, uh, are high enough that we actually put a surgeon out there. At that point, we have, or, or ideally a few years before then, we bring in surgeons under that who, uh, who can then follow our certification pathway and in a couple of years, will have surgeons with that background training. And that's the goal. We have clinical experts who already know this thing and we can rapidly adapt to the changing needs of the industry as those needs come up. One other thing about this in terms of a fellowship is that the funding structures for a fellowship are, I think, easier to deal with than for a residency. Um, for whatever reason, uh, aerospace medicine residents have not been funded by CMS in the U.S., and so that makes it a challenge to maintain a residency. It's a part of why Wright State collapsed. Um, the funding model for fellowships is different, so that's an important part of this. And then the other part of it is, you know, this is not an American-centric endeavor, right? Part of what we think is really important to put in place is something that can eventually be leveraged to teach internationally what physicians need to know because there's a lot of countries that are working on building out their own space programs that want to to build up the expertise within their countries and i think one of the big challenges that nasa has historically had is it is such an administrative nightmare to get anybody who's a foreign national you know into the NASA system and training in those things. I mean, you know, they do it for, for certain things, but the, the training side of it has been rough. Like it's just not, it is, everybody there will tell you it's possible, but nobody there will volunteer to actually do it. And that tells you a lot, right? So um, when we look forward to the needs of what's out there, we think that there's a massive need to be able to step into that space and create training programs that can have a sure an American flavor to them, but also um, help on the international stage with training and helping other countries um, and other space programs set up their own expertise. Um, and that's, you know, we're at a point in history where it, it needs to be done thing where if you can define exactly what it is even if you know we may have our way of going about that but if i can t if we have mapped out what is necessary to learn we can hand that off to 
anywhere. And they can, uh, they can then take that and add their own flair to it and start from a position, uh, start from a position that, that furthers them from where we were. We, they get to leapfrog, and create better and, and more, uh, more advanced programs, which is really the best of what multinational collaboration really is. And, And speaking of collaboration, I think that's a really good point to end on. We started talking about the the origins of aviation and aerospace medicine training. We've talked about the the evolution, the need for collaboration, the need for multidisciplinarity. Um, and I would be remiss to to not note that this is this is but one of a few programs that have sprung up in the past few years. Um, our colleagues at University of California, Los Angeles. Um, there's a couple of others. Um, that have sprung up. Um, so what is your hope going forward for a shared philosophy towards an approach um, for space medicine training um, as a fellowship or otherwise? We work with these other groups. We certainly talk to them. Um, and we think that um, it's really important for all of us to be communicating about uh, developing the core of a curriculum that everybody should be working from. Um, we expect that there are going to be different flavors to different programs, uh, but, but we absolutely are talking to everybody that we can talk to about this because, uh, this is one of those things where, um, I don't think that any one institution really has all of the capacity to do this and historically in part, because, you know, a lot of the institutions and funding lines for this stuff, um, the institutions aren't sure about how much they want to support this stuff. They're trying to see how far the field's going to go, right, before they slap their name on something and really give a lot of buy down or something to faculty to do these things. So you can imagine that Dana and I are putting in a lot of service time at the moment. Um, that said, you know, programs, new programs have come and gone throughout the history of aviation and spaceflight. There have been programs at Ohio State and at Harvard and, you know, certain military places and, and Wright State, like we mentioned, you know, and none of these exist anymore. So part of making sure that we work with everybody is to make sure that the expertise that is in the field continues to be um, available and uh, that the knowledge base continues to grow through active research programs. Um, and, uh, you know, anytime you're starting up a field, things are bumpy, right? Things for one reason or another programs may not survive. So we think it's really important to make sure that all of us are working together to kind of get that core capability developed and, and give us better odds of success over the long run. Yeah. And, and to that point, um, no one's going to get it right. 100% single places. It's it's pretty important to have not just a, a variety of locations in case to as redundancy. This is systems engineering. You don't want to have a single point of failure. You want to have multiple sites that can, if one of them doesn't work, the others can learn from the mistakes and move forward. Um, but you also want to have a, a, a diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, inc uh, inclusiveness. You want to learn from, teach, and work together. Um, and that's really something that has been pretty successfully embodied so far by these other programs. There's uh, the University of Texas has one, uh, UCLA has one, and our sister program over at MGH. Um, those, the, the variety of people there and the ideas and methods that they have about going about things has truly strengthened uh, our approach. Um, I can tell you what I think a space medicine expert needs to know, but it's also valuable for me to draw from uh, faculty at other schools or commercial entities and talking to them and getting their ideas. And as part of that, there's, uh, we've created this uh, a council where the um, fellowships can meet uh, regularly, and we have been, uh, to work on uh, common challenges, to address problems that we are experiencing, uh, solve them, and to uh, discuss any issues or successes that we have. So we can actually, th there is that collaborative approach because even even as you come back when it comes down to it you know we're talking about programs and or people usually perceive programs as being in competition with each other but that's not really the point like yeah okay we'll be competing over certain limited resources like occasionally but 
collaboration, cooperation, and inclusion are generally a more powerful strategy uh, that will uh, when that that can be employed that when employed with a healthy dose of competition, generally make things better. And that's where I see this happening. It's not it's not a a, a, a one person show. It's a it's a it's an approach to see how can we learn from each other and build the best programs and best opportunities for our graduates. I think it's a much bigger danger to have, you know, one school of thought about these things that can't be questioned than it is to have a variety of competing ideas. It's a healthy academic ecosystem is what really ends up moving the ball forward. When you have a school of thought that can't be challenged, um, then knowledge research and all the skills tend to ossify into a structure and we need to be more fluid during this time where the field is changing rapidly. Yeah, no one's looking forward to the space medicine edition of Monopoly. Um, so <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Um, this has been a fantastic, some might say stellar hour. Um, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us. Um, I'm going to drop links below for um, anyone who wants to find out more about the BCM program and the space medicine training program. Um, any closing thoughts before we sign off today? Oh, thanks for letting us. <laughs> I kind of like where you ended up. Uh, competition is the law of the jungle, but cooperation is the law of civilization. And if we're actually going to build a spacefaring civilization, maybe we need to look at things that way. So are you saying it's it's Star Trek rather than Star Wars? Well, I certainly know which universe I want to end up in. <laughs> Fair Dr. Eric Antonsen, Dr. Dana Levin, thank you so much for sharing your brains and your passions and expertise in space medicine with us this hour. And most of all, thank you, World Extreme Medicine audience, um, for tuning into this podcast. As always, I'm Dr. Shauna Pandya, and we will see you at the next episode. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical, and performance medicine. Thanks again.